Hi, Pastor John here. How does salvation work? That was a question I was once asked, and I'm not sure if I got the answer right, but today we're going to find the true answer in Luke chapter 24, verse 36 through 53. The title of the sermon is Final Appearance, and this is our last sermon in our ongoing series in Luke, God's Love for Everyone. So I hope you'll enjoy the service with us. I hope you'll wait for just a few minutes after the end of the service. There's some things I'd like to share with you. Meanwhile, let's go to the service. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 24. Anybody know how many chapters are in Luke? 24. Oh, that's very good, very good. Oh, wait a minute. We're in the last chapter, right? We're going to be in 36 through 53. Anybody know how many verses are in Luke? 53. 53. December 22nd, 2019. The word pandemic was something for ancient ages. It certainly didn't apply to us. One on our minds. We were three months away from the lockdown. And we started a series called God's Love for Everyone. Now, I didn't plan that. I didn't plan for us to be in the middle of God's love for everyone as we entered the most divisive, tension-filled era, maybe in the history of the world. That would re- and and the, the, the idea that what we needed was to love each other instead of fight with each other. We found so much stuff to fight about, haven't we? Masks, vaccines, elections, politicians, other countries. It just goes on and on and on. And meanwhile, there's this little voice in Warrington, Virginia, says God loves everyone. There are consequences for sin, but God loves everyone. It's been 110 weeks. We have answered 105 catechism questions. We skipped a few weeks. We've done 235 songs, maybe a few more. And we've had 65 sermons. So this incredible amount of history in the world, in our nation, in our state, here in our town. And here we are. Here we are. And, and the same things on all of our minds. When is this going to end? Where do we go from here? I mean, we were told this was going to go away in June of 2020. So in the next few years, they're going to have their challenges, amen? I mean, we can see that coming, can't we? The world has changed, and, well, so have we. You know, the world's taking a second look at how we go to church. And we can encourage people all day long that they need to be here, but... Some of them aren't going to come. The world's changing right beneath our feet. Very seldom do we have the opportunity to watch the change happen. But if we've been watching what's been going on for the last 110 weeks, we see this change occurring. So what's in store for us? What's in store for Warrington Bible Fellowship? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. I do know that God has formed a body here in Warrington Bible Fellowship. 
And whatever is in store for us, brothers and sisters, we will go there together. We will go there together. Well, last year we learned how to pray together, didn't we? Pray day on Wednesdays. And so we're going to go there together. So as, we're, as, we, as we ponder these things, and as we move into our last sermon in the series of God's Love for Everyone, sermon number 65, I want to remind you, and, and some of you probably remember, uh, about 12, 14 years ago, we had a young adult man here, a very special man, I became friends with. Uh, he, he was absolutely incredible. He was able to process things so fast and so completely. And his mom came to me and said, will you share the gospel with Zeb? And I went, well, yeah, I'll share the gospel with Zeb. We sat over there in the office and I laid it out and he was going, yeah, 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 yeah. And finally he said, could you stop? And I went, yeah, oh, I've overwhelmed him. I uh, gave him too much information. Can we just pray? He said, <laughs> And I went, well, yeah, what do you want to pray for? He said, I want to pray to receive Jesus in my life. Okay. <laughs> and so we prayed. And, and he looked at me afterwards and he said, well, what do we do now? He said, I think we ought to read this, the, the Bible. And he said, yeah, okay, what book should we read? I said, let's start with John. He said, I'd like to start with Job. I went, Okay. Let's read it. Next week, we'll talk about chapter 1. He went, okay, well, next week we got together. And he went through all 42 chapters for me. I mean, he read the book of Job. He said, this is a fascinating book. And, and he looked at me and said, you know, Job was, was a good guy, but, but I guess he had some problems. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't sum up Job any better than that. <laughs> and, and, and God was the solution to his problems. Amen? So then he said to me, how does salvation work? And I went, okay, well, I need to go over this with him again because he didn't understand. I said, look, you know, uh, Lord Jesus died for all of our sins. We're supposed to confess our sins. We're supposed to repent uh, and, and then receive him as Lord. And I just want that question to hang there in the air because that's what it did in my office. After, after I gave him the answer, he's just looking at me. And I thought, am I not communicating? But the question was, how does salvation work? Let that, let that rest in your minds for just a few minutes. You know, last week we got together and we said, well, you've got to know the end of the story. You've got to know how all this ends up. And we saw Cleopas and his companion knew the Scriptures, but in their blindness, they, they didn't apply the Scriptures to their particular situation. They allowed their, their presumptions, they allowed their preconceptions to get in the way of something that was truly miraculous and world-changing. They just couldn't see it. So they needed Jesus to open their eyes, and through that personal encounter with Jesus and through the illumination of the Scriptures, they found something life-changing. That's kind of what happens to us. Now this week, we're going to see a couple more personal encounters, and we're going to hear a bit more about Scripture, and we're going to look at what happens just before Jesus ascends into heaven and then we'll talk about why that had to happen so this sermon is called the final appearance final appearance in many ways so the the passage rolls out in three acts it's a play in three acts acts one is a piece in verses 36 through 43 act number two is 44 through 49 and that is a promise 
And Act 3 is a parting in 50 through 53. So let's take a look at Act 1 in this piece, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, what things are they talking about? They've all had a common experience. That Jesus has arisen. There's excitement. There's buzzing in the room. Uh, The disciples, some of them have seen Christ. They want to share all this. And so as they're doing all that, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. This is really an incredible moment. It's not just a greeting. It's the fulfillment of a promise. So Jesus promised to bring the disciples peace in Luke 2 and, verse 7, and, and chapter 7 of Luke. And we see it throughout the, the, the Gospels. And now, now he brings it. Jesus appears among them and says, peace to you. And, you know, the problem that we have, even as believers, is sometimes peace is a little hard to embrace, isn't it? Sometimes we're so concerned about what's going on around us and all the events that are happening that that the peace that Jesus offers is hard to process. And we see this in the disciples in verse 37. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. That their minds can't make sense out of what's going on. The dots aren't connecting. And rather than falling on their face and giving thanks to God, which happens when, when we see what they call a Christophany in the Scriptures, or the appearance of Christ, rather than falling on their face and giving thanks, they're afraid. They're scared. Now, we don't want to be too harsh on them because it's easy for us to look back and go, a bunch of dummies, what's wrong with them? Okay? No one's ever experienced anything like the moment that they're going through there in the first century. And that's because almost everybody sees death as final. I mean, even Christians do, don't we? Oh, it's so bad, they had to die. The best thing that can happen to a Christian brothers and sisters is go to be with the Lord. But we see it as final. And, you know, it's okay. There's no reason to feel guilty about that. There's some doubt about what happens exactly when everything happens. The theologians and um, biblical authorities can't make a lot of sense out of it. They can't seem to agree on it. So all of a sudden, we've got this small group of people in Jerusalem in the first century, and they're confronted with tangible evidence that death is not final. Absorb that for a second. Matter of fact, it's far from final. And what we find out is there's something beyond life. Something more than what we're experiencing here. Something more than what our senses see and feel. Something mystical. Something exciting. Something eternal. And proof of that something more is standing right in front of them. And the only thing they can think is it must be a ghost. So we need to have a little bit of patience with them as they try to absorb and process everything that's happening. And Jesus understands this. He sympathizes with them. In verse 38, he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do your doubts arise in your heart? Now, Jesus gets the the, the idea that the appearance of a dead person would be unusual and maybe even frightening. But he wants to remind them that he has been preparing them for this moment all along. 
So he proceeds to assure them of who he is. He brings peace. In verse 39, he says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now, this is kind of interesting because uh, there's been a recent teaching about the crucifixion that he didn't really get nailed to the cross. That the typical type of Roman crucifixion was they were tied to the cross and they would die from asphyxiation. It was true, they would, people who were crucified would die of asphyxiation and it didn't matter whether you were nailed or tied there, the result was the same. But Jesus was nailed to the cross. And he shows them the wounds from the nails. Say, so, you know, it's me. Look, you saw all this happen. But there's even more than that. Jesus wants to prove to them that he's flesh and blood, that he's a real person. And just in case there are any doubts that remain after they've seen the wounds, verse 41, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, and he said to them, have you anything here to eat? He said, you got a sandwich? I'm hungry. It's been almost four days since I ate. He wants something to eat. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. So we see, we see the physicality of the resurrection. This is amazing. And, and we, we get comfort, we get assurance from this, from knowing that the promises of God are faithful and true. He said he would come back and he's come back, not just conceptually, not just spiritually, but as a physical body. And we get a little bit more than comfort and assurance of a physical resurrection. Uh, and and we, we need to understand that for believers, that, that's quite a blessing. There is a resurrection. He's the first raised among the dead. And He's promised us that we're going to do the same thing. But we also find out, because this body is a little bit different, it's glorified. We don't fully understand that, but there's something different about the body. But we the new creation, listen, brothers and sisters, the new creation is tangible. It is physical. Nobody's going to heaven and sitting on a cloud and playing a harp. It's going to be a real world. Now, I like to envision that. I have no idea what it's like. I think there are going to be streets and buildings and, I don't know, maybe sports cars. Yeah, I, I hope they're sports cars. <laughs> it's all about me, though. Whatever heaven is going to be, you can touch it. You can feel it. You can experience it. Jesus is the first evidence of the reality of the new creation. We love that. I mean, anybody who doesn't want that, raise your hand. And we'll come and talk to you afterwards. But there's another aspect of that we don't think about very often. Here it is. Listen carefully. Everyone is resurrected. Everybody is going to be resurrected. Not just believers. We don't have a franchise on resurrection. Listen to me carefully. Acts 24, 15. There will be a resurrection 
of the righteous and the wicked. Wait a minute. I thought only believers got resurrected. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. You can check this later on this afternoon. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus just demonstrated that He has returned in a physical body. He can be touched. He can be felt. He eats. He breathes. He does all the things a physical body would do. But He's changed. He's glorified. That's what believers have waiting for them. Glorification. Existing in glory. Glorified but physical bodies existing in a physical new creation. But those who reject Christ have a physical body as well. This changes everything. They have a body that does everything Jesus' body does. Jesus' body experienced no sin, no pain, no grief, no illness. It has all the benefits of heaven and none of the disadvantages of worldly pain, but unbelievers have resurrected bodies as well, but theirs will include, listen carefully, the capability to feel pain. Uh Uh-oh. Theirs will include the capability to feel pain. The peace and assurance that Jesus offers His followers is exactly the opposite of the promise to those who refuse Him as Savior. There's an assurance for them as well, but the assurance is for eternal conscious torment. That's what a statement of faith says. So Jesus brings peace to His followers. And He brings anything but peace to those who refuse Him. Let's take a look at Acts 2, the promise. Then he said to them, verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus places an emphasis on these words, on on the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So again, we see Jesus uh, re-emphasizing this fact that everything in the Old Testament is about him. I mean, there weren't, weren't any more books for the, for the Jews other than the law and, and Moses and the prophets. So everything in the Old Testament points towards Jesus Christ. But to see that, as we learned in the last passage, we need some help. So in verse 45, we see, then Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Something had to happen to the disciples. Something had to happen in order for them to understand what they had been reading all of their lives. Now, we saw that on the road to Emmaus. Christ acted upon the minds of his followers. And he he did it to help them understand the scriptures. He opened their minds. And, And we see this elsewhere. Job, I mean, we see it even in the Old Testament. Job 33, verse 16 says, God opens the ears of men. Psalm 119, 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. 
Acts 16, verse 14, tells us that God opened Lydia's heart. And 1 John 5, verse 20, says, We know the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. So God opens the minds of men and women all over. But what does He open their minds to? Some people would tell you a better life. Other people would tell you uh, a, a better sense of their own identity. Others would say He opens their minds to riches or self-esteem. Or even others would say He opens their minds to some kind of goose-pimp-inducing experience that they have. And even more, and maybe more today, would say that He opens their minds to some kind of wonderful experience in church and worship. Look what God opens our minds to. What, what did Christ want these people to understand? Why is he opening their minds? He has two truths he wants them to, to have their minds open to. Here's the first one, verse 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The first thing he wanted them to understand, the first thing he wanted them to understand, brothers and sisters, he's alive. He's alive. He was dead and he's risen and now he's alive. Death and sin are defeated forevermore in him. That's the first major truth he wants to open their minds to. The second one is this, in verse 47. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now they've seen all this, but now he's opening their minds to it. And he's doing it so that they could proclaim the truths that they've learned to all the nations, to the entire world. It's a huge job. And it's even more challenging because Christ says salvation is not about you. It's not about your experiences. It's not about your quality of life. It's not about your victory. It's not about your power. It's not about your authority. But it's about making you a proclaimer of the truth. About making you a vessel of grace. About making you somebody who shares the, the truth and the grace that saves sinners. And I think Jesus would parenthetically say, even sinners like you and me. It's a tough job. If you stop to think about it, it's impossible. I mean, it's, it, we can't do that. But all things are possible with God, John. Yeah, they are. But that doesn't mean that because I think all things are possible, I'm going to go play with the Washington Commanders next week. All things are possible is not about me satisfying and meeting my potential. In context, when Paul says all things are possible, he means... Anybody who understands the truth can be saved. Anybody who was dead can be made alive. So Christ makes them a promise because he's given them an impossible job to do. Verse 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, we need to understand this. The salvation we're talking about belongs to God. The people who are saved 
belong to God. The message that they have comes from God. Even their capability to proclaim it and the power that they have to be the messengers comes from God. And He promised us, promises us to give that we will have the power that will energize this gospel. So the promise is that we are capable of being what we're called to be. All we have to do is have faith in Him. We don't have to work it up. We don't have to reach deep down inside and realize who we are and then just be confident in what we share. God is going to give us the capability and the power to be His messengers. Wow. So with that, Jesus leaves. (laughs) What? He lays this incredible message upon them And he parts, but he leaves them transformed. Let's look at Act 3, the parting, verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, watch this, while while he's saying this prayer, you know, there's no, okay, guys, i got to go now. While he's blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. He didn't walk away. He didn't hide behind a rock. He didn't disappear into the sunset like some cowboy. He went up. I I don't know about you. That that blows my mind. (laughs) Where'd he go? I mean, he just showed us that he's a physical being. And he floats away while he's saying a blessing, I, I, I would love to have heard those words. They had to be incredible. I, I mean, you know, for the rest of their lives, whoever was standing there had to go, ah, did you hear what he said? And the other guys are probably going, no, what he said? What's going on? Where'd he go? <laughs> and I want to go, where, where, where did he go? Did he go to the other side of the moon? I, I mean, you know, back then they didn't know what that was. What we do today, I want to know where he went. I'd like to go there. It's one of my human failings. I mean, wasn't that what the Tower of Babel was all about? Finding a way to get to heaven apart from Jesus? If I knew where it was, I could go there. So there's this miraculous moment. And the impact that it has on these people is incredible because this group of sad, grieving, defeated Afraid men and women are transformed. Look what happens, verse 52. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. They didn't understand everything, but they knew enough to give thanks to God for what they had just seen and heard. They didn't have all their doctrine worked out. They didn't have that theological foundation that we have available to us today. But they knew God was doing something and that was satisfying enough for them to go praise Him. So we've seen these three acts. We've seen this peace. And we find out that peace is reserved for believers. And the consequences of rejecting Christ are severe. Believers receive peace. Those who reject Christ 
suffer for all eternity. Now, that, that should reinvigorate our efforts to share the gospel. That should give us a new urgency in our discussions with loved ones, with friends, with, with co-workers, classmates. Everyone who needs Jesus needs to hear not just the good news of salvation. Again, a major point. Because in the evangelical church today, it has become inappropriate to talk about hell. But now that we know that unbelievers are resurrected to pain, it should change everything. We need to know not just that we're saved, but we need to know what we're saved from. You and I need to know what we're saved from. Because while we thought that just believers were going to be resurrected, now we know that by God's grace, we have been delivered from an eternity of pain. Oh my. It's part of the gospel. We saw this promise. God knows that how difficult it can be to be proclaimers. So Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit to do the heavy lifting here. All we have to do is open our mouths. Do you know what that means? That means the pressure's off. I, I mean, if we're free to tell people about Jesus Christ. We don't have to learn some complicated method. We don't have to get all of the steps right. We don't have to memorize 12 steps or 7 steps. Or we don't even have to memorize 4. Now, those things can be helpful. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with these things. But the power to proclaim, the power to transform, is not in some method. Even the power to process and absorb the truth starts and ends with God. It doesn't end with you. And it doesn't end with me. All we have to do is be faithful. Talk about Jesus and how He changed our lives. How He gave us eternity to be with Him. So the third act was this parting. So Jesus kept on saying, I have to leave. Why? Well, it was God's perfect plan. Watch this. This is what we've seen happen in Luke. God took on flesh, comes down to earth, the incarnation, as his son, Jesus Christ. And he comes here to live a sinless life. He gives that life up on the cross. He's raised from the dead to prove that he's got victory over sin and death. And then he rises to the Father and sits at his right hand, position of authority and power and esteem, and sends the Holy Spirit. Now what's the Spirit's job? He's not the pinch hitter. He's not the designated batter. He's here. The Holy Spirit is here. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to remind us and encourage us to point everything we do to Christ. Who is in heaven and is there, brothers and sisters, Mark told us about this, to be our advocate. You ever go to court? I went to court one time to defend myself. <laughs> it was the worst decision I ever made. I got all this, I'm reading about this, you know, 
I tell you why I was there, but then you know I had a speeding ticket. I had learned, oh, ask the officer about calibrating his gun and the last time he did this and how many times he used it during the day. I was really confident that I was going to get off. I stood in front of the judge. The judge says, well, you're, you're cited for... I'm not even going to tell you what I was cited for. It's a speeding ticket. And what do you say? And I went, I, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm guilty. <laughs> I, needed, I needed somebody that knew the law. I needed somebody that could speak to the judge. I needed somebody that could go on my behalf that knew how this worked. Now, I needed a lawyer that day. I didn't realize in that particular time how desperately I needed an advocate in heaven. Not somebody who could speak to the law, but somebody who wrote it. Somebody who could take my case to the judge of all judges and plead for me. So Jesus sits at the right hand of God to be our advocate. He takes us to the Father. Watch this. He sends a spirit to encourage us and point us towards Jesus Christ who's sitting next to the Father praying for us, pleading our case. And our case is based not on what we've done or what we haven't done, but on what He's done. It's based on His perfect righteousness. So what we see as he rises into heaven, is all three members of the Trinity fulfilling their roles, bringing glory to God by saving lost souls. And we get caught up in God honoring himself and bringing glory to himself by being saved and brought into glory as well. So that's some good theology. But watch this. The result, you're never alone. You're never on your own. You never have to work through your salvation. We are to strive for holiness. We are to strive for righteousness. But whether or not we're good at that does not change our eternal destiny. We're never alone. We're never on our own. We never have to prove ourselves. We never have to doubt. We never have to worry. We never have to fear. The Spirit has guided us to Jesus Christ. We are already in Him, and He is one with the Father. Now, we may not be feeling that right now, but brothers and sisters, we will. We will experience that. Because each member of the Trinity is working out our salvation. This is why the ascension is so important. This is why Jesus had to leave. God's perfect plan was the Father to work with the Son and the Holy Spirit to draw men and women unto them. So, as I'm sitting there with Zeb, and he's giving me this long stare. He says, I know that. That's not what I meant. I've already prayed and repented and saved. John, I want to know the nuts and bolts. This is it. This is it. The nuts and bolts are God the Father, God the Judge, Jesus the Advocate, the Holy Spirit taking us into the courtroom so that we can be declared righteous and with him forever with that 
knowing we're all going to be there. Amen. All those who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, all those who have confessed their sins, all those who have repented. Let's have communion. This is something we do together, brothers and sisters. This is not, this is not a private moment between us and the Holy Spirit. We do commune. We do examine ourselves. We look at ourselves. But any fault we find in ourselves, this is the opportunity to just lift it up to the Lord and say, thank you for taking care of this. Thank you for delivering me from this. So, it, it, you know, in, in that respect, there's a little bit of self-examination, but this is an expression of who we are as the body of Christ. It's an expression of how we became the body of Christ. He sacrificed himself. He went through all that stuff that we talked about three weeks ago, all that pain, all that torture and everything, so that we could sit here in this sanctuary today and have communion. And look back and remember. Remember that sacrifice that was made for us, but at the same time, experience the union that we have in Him and with each other. So, it's a memorial participation, what the FCA calls it. We remember the sacrifice and remember the gift we've been given through that sacrifice. So I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward. We're going to hand out these impossible-to-open little packets. And we'll thank God that we can open them. Amen. <laughs> we'll take the wafer in the top together, and then we'll open the bottom and take the juice together as well. But thank you. Father in heaven, we thank you for this, this crumb, this morsel of bread that reminds us of that body that was tortured. It was beyond agony. That body that was nailed to a cross, placed in a tomb, and praise God came out of the tomb, glorified, physical yet something more. Lord, we thank you that your word says that we are one with him. We thank you, Lord, that that reminds us that we are bound together inextricably by, by something that is eternal. Something that goes far beyond anything we will experience until we stand there with you. So we thank you for that moment where he broke the bread, said, take and eat.
And Lord, we, 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 don't, we don't for one moment under, under, believe that, that this juice is actually your blood. Oh, but Lord, it's such a poignant reminder of the blood that cleanses us, the blood that frees us, the blood that delivers us from, not from this world, but from ourselves, Father, and from our own actions. We thank You that as it poured out of Him, it pours over us, Father, and restores us into a right relationship with You. Lord, Your Word, when it speaks of blood, it speaks of life. We thank You for the blood that He shed to give us life. We thank You for that moment, Lord, where He raises the cup and says, this is My blood, which is shed for You. Plural, for all those who believe in Him. Take and drink. And we thank You, Father, for the privilege, for the honor of being Your children. We thank You for the vision of the Trinity, Father, and how totally dependent we are into each member of the Trinity doing what You've designed them to do. That we might become one with Your Son. We might become one with You, Father. That we might stand in glory for all eternity. Tangible, intangible, whatever it's like, Father. We give You thanks that we will be with You. We pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Pastor John here once again, and let me thank you again for joining us. If you'd like to participate in our ministry, there's three ways to get a hold of us. You can find us on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. We're on Facebook at WBFVA. And we're also on YouTube at WBFVA. Maybe you're watching us there now. So we would love to hear from you. If you have prayer requests, if you, have, if you just want to talk to somebody, give us a call, drop us a line, send me a note. I would love to be able to chat with you for a while. Before you go, though, let me ask you to do this favor for me. Would you go down to the bottom of the screen on the YouTube channel and give us a thumbs up if you listen to our broadcast. Even subscribe to our channel so that you can keep up with our teaching. God bless you, and thanks again for joining us.